Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Just a reminder, my new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, it couldn't be more timely. The subtitle, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class, is out next week. And Tuesday of next week, David Corton and I are doing a conversation about the Hidden History of American Oligarchy at Powell's Bookstore. P-O-W-E-L-L-S dot com is the website, I'm pretty sure. And, of course, there's a link to it at TomHartman.com. On Thursday of next week, I'll be doing a solo event with Town Hall Seattle talking about the book. And that will be Thursday, February 4th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. The Powell's event is on Tuesday at 5 p.m. You have to sign up for each one of these, and the links are over at our website at TomHartman.com. Or Town Hall Seattle, they've got their own website. Powell's has its own website. And then the following week, uh, the week after next, David Corden and I will be revisiting our conversation, and that'll be on Tuesday, February 9th at 4 p.m. Pacific time. So that's what's coming up, and I think you're going to really like my conversations about it. And in fact, today, the piece that I wrote over at TomHartman.Medium.com. Medium is just, I've just discovered this really great place. I realize there's several sites like this, you know, Substack is doing the same thing, uh, although that's kind of more for like newsletters, like I believe David Sirota is using that. But Medium.com is a site that gives you access to literally thousands of writers on dozens or hundreds of topics. There's some really good stuff there with no advertising, no solicitation, no hustle, no selling your email address, none of that kind of stuff. I've become a real fan. I've been following a couple of people, particularly Umer Hake over at uh, Medium for, geez, four or five months now, and uh, decided to just jump in about three weeks ago. And, and uh, every day I'm publishing an op-ed there. I'm writing every morning. Louise and I get up and, and write this op-ed and, and just you know get it up over there and it typically becomes the basis of my rant for the day, and that's very much the case today. The piece that I published today is titled, We're at the Threshold of a Fascist Authoritarian Takeover, and January 6th was our Kristallnacht. And uh, the subtitle, The Work of 245 Years and Millions of Lives Dedicated or Given to Defend the American Ideal Could Vanish. And, and I start out by pointing out that today is the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz, and it's the day after... 45% of the United States Senate, 45 Republicans in the United States Senate voted to say 
Donald Trump inciting a mob to storm the Capitol building and murder five people or kill five people, including murdering a police officer. And by the way, the second police officer who responded to this, this is a D.C. Metro police officer. They just announced today, it's over at the Washington Post, a second police officer who responded to this, uh, to this riot has now committed suicide. This is tough stuff. But we've got Republicans saying, yeah, fascism, it's fine with us. So how does this happen in a society is the question that I'm asking. And I'm, I'm going to try and answer that right now. How does it happen that Germany in the 30s or Italy in the 20s or Spain in the 30s or Chile in the 70s or the Philippines today or, or the United States at this very moment, how is it that countries developed, advanced wealthy countries flip into fascism. How does that happen? What is the force that drives it? And one of the things I point out is that Joe Lockhart, he was Bill Clinton's press secretary for several years during the Clinton administration. He tweeted out yesterday, quote, being a Republican senator now means nothing matters. Nothing matters. Not the storming of the Capitol, not an attempted coup, not trying to overturn a free and fair election. Nothing matters. The party of Trump, nothing matters. And, and my response to that is essentially, Joe, you know, you're describing the party somewhat accurately, but there is something that matters. And what matters is the authoritarianism. We all, every single one of us, every human being on this earth, in the early years of our lives, were entirely dependent upon others. We were dependent upon our parents for food, for having our diaper changed, you know, for nurturing us, for raising us. There have been times in all of our lives when we needed somebody bigger, larger, and stronger than us to protect us and nurture us and nourish us. Now, some people got through childhood relatively unscathed, and they have a fairly decent sense of self, and they live their adult lives without great fear. But there are other people who had such insecurity through their childhood. And there may be some kind of, you know, proclivity. Maybe it's genetic. Maybe it's temperament. Who knows? That's also a part of this. I mean, there's a huge debate in the psychological community. But the best guess is that, you know, 20 to 30 percent of people in any advanced society are what are called authoritarian followers. They want daddy or mommy, more often than not daddy. They want to be protected. They want to be cared for. They want a strong authority figure. They're frightened by uncertainty. And authoritarianism offers certainty, safety, security, you know, for the in-group. In this case, in, in the United States, it's white people. It offers that safety and security and, you know, yes, you're in charge and don't worry and, and Big Daddy Trump is going to take care of you. And democracy, on the other hand, is messy, right? It's it just, you know, it's, it's messy. It's uncertain. You, you don't know how it's going to play out. You don't know what's going to happen. Sometimes you're, you lose, sometimes you win. And people who are authoritarian followers don't like that. They're frightened by that at a deep level, at a level that emerged when they were three and four and five years old. I mean, I knew several Nazis. I was very close friends with Armin Lehmann, who was, when he was 16 years old, he was the guy who delivered the news to Hitler that the war was lost in the bunker. 
my mentor, my closest friend for years, Gottfried Mueller, he was part of the German army, parachuted into Iraq to, seize the, to help the Kurds seize the oil fields for Hitler. And when I asked these guys, how did this happen? And they're like, well, it was almost like the country just overnight, and it was really a matter of a few months, maybe a, a year or so, but essentially overnight, the country just flipped. And what that is, is that tipping point is reached where enough people in society say, we are so freaked out, we are so afraid, we are so uncertain, we will take the strong man over this uncertainty. The Washington Post has a story today. One in seven American families are going to bed hungry. Now, today, this, you know, just like the, the ravages of the Great Depression and the, and the Treaty of Versailles, what, what that did to Germany set the stage for Hitler. The failure of four years of Trumpism to feed people in America is setting the stage for fascism in the United States. Uh, now, this is not an idea that I just came up with. Robert Altmaier wrote a book called The Authoritarians. John Dean did, who's been on the show many times, did a, a sequel to it, Conservatives Without Conscience. Hannah Arendt's fam famous The Origins of Totalitarianism. They all basically make the same point. That, you know, right-wingism, authoritarianism, lives at the margins of society eternally, right? It's, usually, it's, it's always there, 5 or 10% of the population. But during times of crisis, it can pop and it can reach 30, 40, 50% of the population and suddenly sweep across the country like a wave. People say, okay, today's the anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. How did that happen in Germany? We're watching it right now. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Now, there are some very specific things we can do to stop this authoritarian takeover. I will cover those on the other side of this break, and then we'll pick up your phone calls. On the Science Revolution, Dr. Justin A. Frank is here on the psychology of mob mentality and violence. What propels a mob? Dr. Sam Metz, a member of Mad as Hell Doctors, drops by on the need for federal legislation to allow individual states to create true statewide universal health care plans, especially single-payer plans. Plus, in geeky science, I've discovered how 11 minutes can save the quality of your life. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Pat in LaPorte, Indiana. Hey, Pat, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I uh, received a, a little blip on my telephone a couple of days ago, and I have never heard anything about it on the news, so I'm hoping that you might be able to shed some light on this. Um, I received a message that the Supreme Court has dismissed the cases against Trump involving the emoluments clause. That I could find is that they said he's no longer in office. And I just don't, I don't accept that. It's hard for me to accept that reason. So have yeah, you I, heard I, anything? I, yes, I, I have not read the decision or the, uh, the, the lack of decision. I'm not sure exactly how they rejected it. But I have read two news stories about it. And my understanding is that the court basically chose the cowardly way out. The petition before the court was to stop Trump from having direct control over his companies because those companies were doing business with the federal government, you know, like, you know, renting rooms to Secret Service agents and things like that. And therefore, he was being enriched in violation of the Emoluments Clause. What the Supreme Court said, in essence, was because he's no longer in office, he's no longer violating the Emoluments Clause. And so we can't rule on this because the action that we take would be meaningless. Now, those are my words, not theirs. But, um, 
whether this was the six conservatives on the court saying, yeah, we're in with Trump no matter what, come hell or high water, you can depend on us, or whether there was something in the way that the argument to the court was written and crafted that required the court to respond this way, I don't know the answer, and I have been looking for uh, an answer to that. And and uh, I, I guess I'm, you know after I get off the air, I'll have to go over and check the probably on the Lawfare blog. There's there's some deep dive about it, which I just haven't haven't done um, uh, yet. But but that so you know, but the, I think that's the big question, Pat. Is is this court signaling that they're in the bag? for fascism in the United States, or is this court simply dealing with, you know, some legal reality that, or technicality that uh, demanded that? So I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a, a quick answer for you. Pat, thank you for the call. Robin in uh, Los Alamitos, California. Hey, Robin, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I want to know, is there any recourse with the 45 cowardice senators after they failed to impeach Trump to prevent him from getting rewarded with his pension? And all the money, a million dollar travel or whatever he gets once he right. leaves office. Is there any other right. recourse besides the impeachment to stop that? Not that I know of. Although Congress can pass the presidential security detail and the presidential pension and the presidential travel uh, you know, payments, all that kind of stuff. None of that's in the Constitution. All of that was created as laws by Congress. And so Congress creates laws. Congress can uncreate laws or Congress can create exceptions to laws. But the vote was not whether or not to impeach Trump. It was whether or not to hold a trial. And the vote was 55 for a trial, 45 to not hold a trial. So the trial is going to happen. It's going to happen in two weeks, Robin. And I am hopeful that the Democrats will be able to present enough compelling evidence that even these hardcore Republicans will be aghast and the entire nation will be aghast. We'll see. We'll see. But I'm hopeful that some good will come out of this. Robin, thank you for the call. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large, snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserve technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he'd run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity, and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. 
Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings. But nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology, often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately, unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. So I, I, I kind of laid out, I think in the last segment, I laid out the, the, the problem that we're facing, which is that, you know, there's always an authoritarian element in every society. But during times of stress, the people who lean authoritarian or whose inner authoritarian followerness gets activated come out of the woodwork and start behaving like authoritarians. And that's what we're seeing right now. And we're seeing this in particular. Now, there's a, a series of crises, right? From the point of view of a racist white people, which is you know probably half the white population in America, just having black people marching through the streets of American cities week after week in the Black Lives Matter protests in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and others, and Breonna Taylor and others, was enough to cause them, some of them, to say, "Oh, wait a minute, we need a, you know, we need a strong hand here." We saw this back in the '70s when cities were burning, and Richard Nixon was using that. You know, his whole law and order thing was basically, you know, I, we're going to get the black people under control here. That was Nixon's pitch. And it worked. It brought out the authoritarian white people on racial issues. So you've got that. And then you've got COVID on top of that. And then you've got foreign governments churning our social media with bot accounts, you know, promoting fascism and trashing the idea of democracy. And then you've got Republicans who desperately want to become president, who are willing to say and do anything to get there. And people who want to hold on to political, Republicans who want to hold on to political power and also want to keep the money train from the right wing billionaires going. And so it's like a perfect storm. 
So what do we do? How do we deal with this explosion of authoritarianism in the United States? Here are the steps that I believe are absolutely necessary. Number one, we need to hold lawbreakers, authoritarian lawbreakers, to account with swift and certain justice. The people who invaded the Capitol. I was ranting about this, uh, I don't recall if it was yesterday or last, or Monday, but this article in the Washington Post suggesting that the Justice Department and the federal courts just can't handle all these hundreds of cases. Maybe we should just let some of these people slide. No. And in fact, you know, I recommend that everybody go over to FBI.gov. The FBI has literally hundreds, maybe over a thousand pictures on their website of people they are trying to identify. People who participated in the murder of five people including a police officer, and the attempted murder of Vice President Mike Pence and Speaker Nancy Pelosi, among others. So number one, nail those people. Number two, the thought leaders in our country, the the columnists in our newspapers, the commentators on television, they have to come out and just unequivocally, and, and particularly those, and you know, God bless people like Steve Schmidt, right, who has left the Republican Party the guy who ran John McCain's campaign, for just coming right out and saying, what you're seeing in the Republican Party right now is fascism. It's naked fascism. And it's being encouraged by people like Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley. So that's number two. Number three, our press is not doing a good job of calling out what's going on and and highlighting the differences between what an authoritarian strongman government looks like and what an actual democratic republic looks like. The news side of the press says, well, we'll just leave that to the opinion people, the op-ed people. And the op-ed side of the press, the editorial side of the press says, well, you know, when there's news, it'll... And the bottom line is the huge contrast between what a democracy is and how it works and what a fascist strongman oligarchy is and how it works, that contrast is not being made. That's, that's why I wrote this book that's coming out next week, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, was to make that case. And we all need to be talking not about the book, but about that case. Next, Republicans have to drop their voter fraud big lie. I realize it's one of the ways that they hold power, but it is tearing this country apart. A lot of these people who stormed the Capitol actually believe Donald Trump won the majority of the vote and it was stolen from him by Joe Biden. Republicans have to clean that up. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, Congress and the Biden administration have to make America work again. We've got to get the pandemic under control. We've got to get money into people's hands. We've got to solve this problem of one in seven American families going to bed every night with, without enough food, for God's sake. We've got to put people back to work. We've got to restore American integrity. If we can't make America work, more and more people are going to say, well, hey, democracy doesn't work. I'll take the strong man. Ted Cruz says he can fix everything. Josh Hawley says he can. Tom Cotton says he knows the answers. I'll, I'll, I'll listen to them. We've got to fix this. Those are the steps. It's all over at my blog at TomHartman.com and at TomHartman.Medium.com if you want to check it out and share it with other people. We'll be right back.
So remember uh, back in 2020 when in California, Uber and Lyft were pouring all kinds of money into Prop 22, which basically would allow them to continue claiming that their drivers weren't actually employers of Uber. They were actually contract workers. Uh, they were all independent small businesses and therefore the company didn't have to pay for unemployment insurance, didn't have to pay for workman's compensation if somebody got injured, didn't have to offer them any health insurance, in fact, basically couldn't, couldn't even do it. And there's a whole bunch of other benefits that are associated, and protections that you actually get, state and federal protections that you get as an employee that you do not have available to you as a contractor. Well, it passed because of millions of dollars from Uber, and now the fallout is happening. Companies across California are starting to fire their workers and telling them, we'll hire you back. I give examples in our new video over at TomHartman.com. Welcome back, Tom Harbin here with you. Just a couple of things real, real quickly that I wanted to share with you. Number one, I mentioned the second police officer has committed suicide who responded to the Capitol. Apparently, some of these officers were extraordinarily badly injured. One police officer is gonna lose an eye, Several others have suffered brain damage. We do know that, you know, from football players that one of the results of traumatic head injury is that people start to experience severe depression. It's a very, very common side effect, and it's one of the reasons that there are high suicide rates among former football players, as well as police officers and other people who bang their heads a lot. Apparently, these fascists who stormed the Capitol, these Trump supporters, were just pounding on these police officers on their heads in particular when possible. So there's that. And then secondly, the Department of Homeland Security just issued a national terrorism alert Warning, this is from uh, by Rachel Levy in the Wall Street Journal. The Department of Homeland Security issued a national terrorism alert warning that violent domestic extremists could attack in the coming weeks, emboldened by the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol. The Department of Homeland Security, in an alert issued Wednesday, said violent extremists opposed to the government and opposed to the presidential transition, quote, could continue to mobilize to incite or commit violence. The DHS release was part of a public alert called the National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin. This is their first bulletin in about a year. The last time was in January 2020, warning that Iran might be doing cyber attacks on the United States, which, you know, sure enough, it looks like happened. So here we are. What a mess. Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. Mark in Philadelphia. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how you doing? Hey, yeah, it's, all, it's very it's disgusting up. what's going on. I don't understand. When we talk about this Constitution, and I hope they do this in the impeachment trial, what about the preamble? Before you get any amendment, any constitutional right, we have a preamble that is a legal document that defines the goals and interprets the laws of another legal document. And that preamble says that our elected officials under oath are to establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense and promote the general welfare. But they say you can't impeach him. It's not constitutional. Well, guess what? Establishing justice is constitutional, and you swore an oath to it. 
ensuring our domestic tranquility. You're attacking our government. There's nothing tranquil about that. And if you're a Republican that doesn't read your own preamble, a legal document that defines your goals and ambitions of the Constitution, you shouldn't be a senator. And they should use this preamble every chance they get, even with the Second Amendment, because guns on the street do not ensure domestic tranquility, and it doesn't provide for any... It's a profiting it's a profiting tool for Republicans. And if they use this preamble more to interpret their own laws, they would know Donald Trump needs justice because he didn't ensure domestic tranquility. He provided no common defense. Nobody's general welfare was taken care of. He killed people. If anything's impeachable, it's, it's his behavior, his aiders, his abettors, his followers. They violated the preamble more so than the Constitution, the preamble that tells them how to interpret the Constitution. And, and the Supreme Court should use the preamble more. It tells you how to interpret our laws. This guy needs justice, and it's there in black and white, Tom. I learned it in 10th yeah. grade. Yeah, I'm with you, Mark, and uh, that was a brilliant rant. That was an absolutely brilliant rant, and uh, I hope you reduce it to writing somewhere. It's been a couple of years since I've done a rant like that on the preamble, but it's one of my favorite rants. In fact, uh, I opened, uh, or the second chapter of my book, Unequal Protection, does a deep dive into the preamble and the, and the seven guarantees, essentially, of the preamble. I am totally with you, and thank you so much for saying it. Somebody needed to say that, and Mark just said it brilliantly. Lisa in Herbert City, Utah. Hey, Lisa, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Um, an earlier caller said that um, there should be a law that presidents should produce their tax returns in order to run for office. Well, I would go further. Right. I would say that, that presidential candidates need to be able to pass a security clearance because all federal employees with access to classified information need to do that. And I might add that even senators and congresspeople before they can run for office should be able to pass the security clearance. Lisa, in principle, I agree with you. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump has all these foreign entanglements before he came into the White House, that he was already in bed with multiple dictatorships around the world where there were Trump towers, that he was that he was negotiating with the Russian government to create a Trump Tower in Moscow up to the day of the election. <laughs> you know, this yes. is this is explosive stuff and 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 made Donald Trump a, a massive security threat to the United States for the four, full four years he was in there and God only knows how much damage he did to our national security. I agree with you in principle. Here's the problem. The uh, because I've, I, I, I have been, uh, uh, let's say, on the periphery of security checks myself in the past. And uh, the process of doing a security check is not transparent. It, it, you have no idea when, when uh, in, in, in my, well, I, I don't want to get into my details on this, but, um, you know, the, some work I did as a government contractor years ago. But the point is that, that when you go through one of these pros processes, you don't know what they're looking into. You don't know who they're talking to. You don't know where they're getting their information. And you don't know what their criteria is to decide whether they're going to let you come into, in, in my case, it was the offices of the National Security Agency. You don't know if that, you know, you just don't know any of that. And because it's such a non-transparent process, which it has to be, you, you then find yourself in a situation where let's say Donald Trump is president 
and Bernie Sanders decides he wants to run for president. And Donald Trump is in charge of the agencies, the police agencies, you know, through the Department of Justice, the FBI that carries out the security checks. And Trump directs the FBI that, you know, well, anybody who's ever visited Russia, Bernie, you know, went uh, when he was the mayor of Burlington, they have a sister city in Russia. And he and his, his first wife went over there for, for sort of their honeymoon. Um, but it was, you know, this joint city thing. But let's just use that as an example, something that was benign. I mean, you know, I know that people tried to use it against him, but it was totally benign. But Trump could say to the FBI, this disqualifies him, and they could agree. And then he couldn't run for president. I mean, you know, it's, this is the problem. I mean, there, it, it, it's like, the, I, I don't have a problem with saying that you have to make your tax returns public. In, in fact, I don't have a problem with saying any candidate for federal office has to make at least the last five years of their tax returns public. Um, you know, if you don't want to do that, you shouldn't run for public office. But whenever we're talking about the federal government having the ability to basically censor, stop, prevent, you know, short circuit, reroute, whatever, somebody who wants to run for public office, what you're doing is handing a, a power to the federal government that can be abused. And I, you know, I, I apologize for sounding like Charles Koch here, but um, do you understand what I'm saying? Am I making sense here, Lisa? Yes, that, that's a great point. It can be politicized, basically. Yes. Yeah, exa- yeah. you said <laughs> it took me a minute and a half to say it, and you said it in one <laughs> sentence. Perfect. Lisa, thank you so much. It's great to hear from you. I appreciate it. Tim in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Tim, we got about a minute. You got a quick one? Uh, yeah, just a statement that Trump put out about uh, how he was going to continue to carry out his agenda for the Trump administration, that he established this office. So my thing is that is this more like a third world country where they, the the person that was empowered, the dictator, he established a, a government within the government so that he could keep his power? Because it seems like this is what I'm looking at. He's no longer the president. Why is he opening up right. the office saying that he's going to continue as the president? Right, and Melania just announced she's opening up a Be Best office, too. Tim, I, I'm guessing that Donald Trump wants to continue to be, and is, by the way, 80% of the Republican electorate. I agree. I completely agree. And a way of maintaining his position as a serious political player so he can start fundraising again because he's desperately in need of cash. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Let's not forget, Jared Kushner set up a a shell company with Donald Trump, and over $600 million of the billion dollars he raised for his campaign went into that company. You're listening to Tom Hartman. So we can talk about the filibuster. The other thing that some... uh, senators like about the filibuster is it gives them an excuse it was in 2012 when uh, sandy hook happened remember this 20 first graders six and seven year olds were slaughtered along with six adults and two senators pat toomey republican from pennsylvania and joe manchin democrat from west virginia the very joe manchin who is opposing ending the filibuster right now proposed legislation that would have strengthened background checks. Just real simple stuff. They weren't banning guns or anything. It was just background checks. 55 senators were in favor of it out of 100. That's a majority. And 90% of the American public supported it, according to multiple public opinion polls. 
They ran from 83% up to 90%, the support, depending on whose poll you looked at. And so Pat Toomey and Joe Manchin brought this to the floor of the Senate. And some random senator said, I object. And all of a sudden, it went from needing a simple majority, 50 votes to become law, to needing 60 votes to become law. And of course, they only had 55 votes, and so it died. This is how it works. And the reason why so many Democrats, or a few Democrats and all the Republicans, continue to love the filibuster, and we heard this over and over and over and over again from Democrats during Barack Obama's presidency. You know, even when he had a majority in the Senate, they would say, well, you know, it would be nice to pass single-payer health care, but we don't have 60 votes. You know, we got to hit that 60-vote limit. You can't do it with, without 60 votes. And it's like a way of passing the buck, right? And it's not my fault. I don't control 60 votes. I just control one vote. It was BS then. It's BS now. And Manchin and Cinema need to get with the program. Meanwhile, state Republicans are scrambling to enact new voter legislation, anti-voter legislation. And this is the thing. Karl Rove just published a piece in the Wall Street Journal about this. Now, when he does that, you need to take it very, very seriously. Back in 2009, Karl Rove published a piece in the Wall Street Journal talking about their program to basically use the census outcome to gerrymander a whole bunch of states. They had identified... 107 legislative seats, and they were going to redraw the congressional district lines for 190 congressional seats. This is their program is called RedMap, Project RedMap. Karl Rove just laid it right out in the Wall Street Journal. No secret. Hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to screw the Democrats for a generation, and here's how we're going to do it. And the Democrats read that in the Wall Street Journal and thought, eh, maybe, maybe not. I don't know. I, I'm not so worried. And Rove did it. He pulled it off. Well, Yesterday, he published a piece in the Wall Street Journal saying that, well, here's what he said. He said, Republicans, GOP election officials and legislatures must create a model election code. He said, Republicans should encourage GOP secretaries of state and state lawmakers to develop a model election code. And what might that include? Well, for example, end absentee voting. In Arizona right now, there is legislation in the Arizona legislature to make it so that the only way that you can vote by mail in Arizona is if you have a doctor's slip. If you can prove you're disabled. You're so disabled you can't come to the polls. In Kentucky, the Republicans are trying to pass a law stripping their Democratic governor, I think that's Andy Bashir, stripping his authority to implement emergency election changes during a pandemic. In other words, making it easier for people to vote by mail. In Montana, the Republicans have legislation to end same-day registration. In New Hampshire, they're looking to do the same thing. In Georgia, where for a century they have used basically election rigging strategies, voter suppression strategies like shutting down, you know, in the weeks before an election, shutting down polling places in black neighborhoods, opening up extra polling places in white neighborhoods. They are now trying to basically put into law things in Georgia that will cement that, the ability of them to do that, as well as making it harder to vote by mail. 
Why is that? Because that whole strategy of shutting down polling places in black neighborhoods and opening more polling places in white neighborhoods that has kept Georgia in Republican hands for years, and not just Georgia, by the way. Alabama does this, Mississippi does this, Louisiana does this, Florida does this. All these red states, most all of them do this. That's how they win elections. And that gets blown up with vote by mail. Because if they close the polling place down the street from your house, it doesn't matter if you can drop your ballot in the mailbox. So get ready. Karl Rove and the Republicans are coming because they know that's the only way they can continue to hold on to power in this country on behalf of their billionaire and big corporate donors. It's coming. Red states are undercounting COVID. Surprise, surprise. We'll talk about that, and I'll pick up your calls on the other side of this program. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Hermit King, The Dangerous Game of Kim Jong-un by Chung Min Lee. This is from the first chapter, Life in Earth's Paradise. Whenever a North Korean is asked by a foreign journalist or visitor what life is like inside North Korea, the reply is that the country's citizens live in an earthly paradise for one reason, the care given to them by the supreme leader. He is their father and provider. They lack for nothing nor do they desire anything else. The Supreme Leader makes sure that they are totally happy. Just like the Heavenly Father in Christianity, it is the living head of the Kim family that makes everything possible in North Korea. This is a total lie, except for the super elites who are bound inextricably with the regime, including the creme de la creme of the party, armed forces, security agencies, and hard currency-making enterprises, the vast majority of North Koreans must fend for themselves. Life was not always like this in North Korea. While it's impossible to imagine today, North Korea had a higher GDP than South Korea until the early 1970s. In 2017, South Korea's GDP was 1.5 trillion, whereas North Korea's was 33 billion. 
per capita GDP was $30,000 in South Korea, $1,300 in North Korea. Still, North Koreans are routinely told that South Korea is filled with beggars and only a tiny percentage of corrupt capitalists live well. The rest of the population ekes out the barest of livings in squalid conditions. Because the country is a stooge of the American imperialists, South Korean women are constantly raped by American soldiers, Pyongyang's propagandists claim, and the people are yearning for liberation by North Korea. Even the government-funded Russian international television network, RT, which has prided itself as a mouthpiece of the Putin regime, believes that North Korean propaganda has gone a step too far. A 2017 RT documentary called The Happiest People on Earth, North Korea, The Rulers, The People, and The Official Narrative, offers the outside world a peek into that nation. A factory manager recounts her emotions when Kim Jong-un made an on-site inspection visit in January 2016. Quote, when the great Marshal Kim Jong-un opened the windows and walked in, we beheld his sun-like image. It was like a dream, as if I was the only one who enjoyed this great honor. She continues with straight face, the entire factory and workshop filled with sunlight when the great marshal arrived. The film crew captures a scene of students studying in the famous Kim Chak University of Technology. Since most North Korean men have to spend 10 years in the army before they can enroll at a university, male students at Kim Chak are typically in their late 20s or early 30s. One student says, Thanks to the great leader and the Marshal General's revolutionary course, our country became the strongest country in the world. With a big smile, the student goes on to say, all stooges who dare attack our sovereignty are our enemies. Each year, the nation busies itself preparing for the celebration of Kim Il-sung's birthday on April 15th, called the Day of the Sun. The film crew captured citizens gathering in a plaza to pledge their loyalty to Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il. After they take their vows, first grade children goose step to martial music, and the child leading the formation raises her right arm in a 45 degree salute, just like the goose stepping members of the armed forces. A middle school orphanage official tells the film crew that the great Marshal Kim Jong-un spent two hours visiting the school. In the entrance, you see a giant mural depicting the floor plan of the orphanage. The point where Kim began his inspection is marked with a red star, and his footsteps are marked in red arrows. The entire room is devoted to pictures and relics of his visit. The red and yellow blanket that Kim touched and the white chair with the blue cushion he sat in are boxed in glass. Everything he touches is preserved as a holy remnant, just as was done with anything his father or grandfather touched. This is how the state wants to portray the average North Korean, filled with undying love for the Kim family, finding truth only in the teachings of Kim Il-sung and Kim Jong-il, and receiving guidance in everything from the current supreme leader, Kim Jong-un. The truth is, every North Korean has an avatar, because how the avatar behaves can mean the difference between life and death. The avatar is for public consumption, what is shown to most friends, relatives, and co-workers. A North Korean can show his or her innermost secrets to just a handful of people, perhaps immediate family members, trustworthy relatives, and best friends who have committed a common crime like watching a South Korean movie. The dark side of North Korea, the state argues, is simply fake news conjured up by the capitalist West and enemies of the state. But right beneath the veneer of 25 million smiling North Koreans lies a darkness that fills every square meter of the DPRK. There are at least four gulags in North Korea where between 200 and 300,000 political prisoners 
and their families are held. Officially, the state says there are no political prisoners. An Moy Shoal was a guard in Camp 22, no longer in operation, and one of the few guards who escaped to South Korea. He was trained to see prisoners not as human beings, but as animals. In fact, prisoners got smaller rations than the dogs reared by guards. Prisoners shouldn't make eye contact with instructors, recalls An. The book, The Hermit King by Chung Min Lee. Welcome back, Tom Harvin here with you. Boy, this is insidious. Boston University School of Public Health has just done a fascinating kind of county by county study of COVID deaths and what are called excess deaths. If you look at, you know, year after year after year in a particular county or state, you can see, you know, okay, typically every year X number of people die in this county, you know, 5,000 a year die in this county, whatever it may be, or 500 a year depending on whether it's a small rural county or some big city. When the number of people who die goes up above the average over the previous years, those are called excess deaths. And excess deaths tend to follow things like massive heat waves. We had uh, the situation here in, in Portland where we couldn't breathe for several days because the forest fires were coming in. There were excess deaths from the forest fires. There will probably be excess deaths from people who had lung damage and heart damage as a consequence of that. Um, you can track those things. I mean, it's a great epidemiological tool. And over the last 12 months, the principal driver of excess deaths in the United States has been COVID deaths that were not defined on their death certificates as COVID deaths. And there's always going to be some, you know, somebody dies of COVID in their home and uh, somebody comes and finds their body and calls the police and the mortician comes or the medical examiner comes and says, yep, he's dead. And, you know, no time to do an autopsy, no need to do an autopsy. It's uh, obviously you know, it wasn't, it wasn't murder. And so it just, you know, it looks like a heart attack. Or maybe it was a heart attack, but was it a heart attack caused by COVID? Or was it a stroke caused by COVID? These are some of the main ways that COVID kills people in addition to basically drowning them in their own lung tissue, which is a horrible way to die. So they're looking at the difference. And what they found was the counties that Donald Trump got the most votes in. They took the 25% of U.S. counties that got the most votes for Trump as a percentage of, uh, of the votes in the county had, on average, 163 excess deaths for every 100 COVID deaths. 163. Whereas counties that Trump didn't carry by large margins, that's the other three quarters of America, you had 44 excess deaths for every 100 COVID deaths. Now, 44 versus 163 looks to me like almost four to one. I mean, that's massive. They're speculating is, you know, why are these people not being diagnosed as COVID deaths? In some cases, it's political pressure. In some cases, in some of these counties, the local medical examiner is a, an elected position. They are Republicans. They are beholden to Republicans, things like that. I mean, there's, there's a, a variety of possible reasons why this is not the case, you know, why they're not diagnosing 
COVID on their death certificates. But, you know, we think that we have, what, 400, and, we're closing in at 420,000 dead Americans as a result of Donald Trump's unwillingness to do anything about COVID for a, a, almost a full year. If you take in the excess deaths that are almost certainly related to COVID, the real number is probably well over a half a million, over another, an additional 100,000. It's mind-boggling. Politics, 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 right? Anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls here. Paula in Miami, Florida. Hey, Paula, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Those two Democrat senators, can't the other senators take them aside and say, look, you were elected by Democrats. And Democrats, pretty much from wherever you come from, want the same things. And if that's not the case, who do they usually vote along with the most, Republicans or Democrats? Because maybe they need to be primaried. Yeah, these are so-called conservative Democrats, Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin. And I think that what they would say to you, although I, I'm not a mind reader, but just, you know, having been watching politics most of my life, I think what they would say to you is, in fact, in West Virginia, you know, Joe Manchin would say, I've got a lot of Republicans who are voting for me. And uh, Kristen Sinema, same thing in Arizona. Arizona is a very purple state. I've got a lot of Republicans who are voting for me, and I want to hang on to their votes. And Republicans don't want to get rid of the, the filibuster, so I'm not going to get rid of the filibuster. Now, I, I believe that the real reason why Sinema and Manchin are voting, are refusing to vote to blow up the filibuster, is because Sinema is deeply indebted, not in debt, but indebted to the banking and insurance industries. Joe Manchin owes a chunk of his political fortune to the coal and natural gas industries. And those industries have benefited tremendously over the decades from the filibuster. And so I think that's what's really going on, is that they want to protect their industries. But, but I'm with you. It's time to say something about it. It's time to do something about it. Paula, thank you for the call. Marilyn at Sun City, West Arizona. Hey, Marilyn, what's up? Hey, Tom, my question is this, just because I don't understand. I get what you're saying about the filibuster, but being the resident Canadian, what I'm trying to understand, although I live in Arizona, is... What is that relationship to the gavels? Why is it that because the Democrats have a majority, small as it is, that they don't automatically get the gavels for the committee chairs? Well, that has to do with what are called the organizing rules of the Senate. The Constitution provides that at the beginning of every congressional session, which is every two years, every two years we get what's called a new Congress. And that's because the entire House is up for re-election every two years, and then one-third right. of the Senate is up for re-election every two years. Right. So at the beginning of every session, both the House and the Senate have to have a vote. In fact, it's typically the first vote, sometimes the second vote after the leadership votes. They have to have a vote on what the rules will be. How will they conduct themselves? What's allowed and what's not allowed? And the filibuster right. is simply part of the Senate rules. So also another part of the Senate rules is who gets to run the committees when it's 50-50. And back in 2001, when the Republicans had power, Trent Lott and, was it Harry Reid? I believe Harry Reid was the Democratic majority leader at the time. But anyhow, the Republican Senate leader and the Republican Democratic leader got together and basically the Democrats said, okay, you've got the White House with George W. Bush, you've got the House, you've got the Senate, you've got all the power. Well, it's 50-50 in the Senate. So what we'll do is we will acknowledge your power 
and we'll let you basically make the decisions in the committees, even though the committees are 50-50. In other words, the committee chairs can be Republicans. So that's the precedent that was set in 2001, in January of 2001, at the beginning of that new Congress. So Chuck Schumer said to Mitch McConnell, hey, you know, we did this for you 20 years ago when we had an identical situation. So you do it for us this time. We'll just, this the exact same rules, only instead of the Republicans running the, the committees, because we don't have a Republican president, and we don't have a Republican-controlled House of Representatives, and we don't have a Republican-controlled Senate, instead of the Republicans right. running the committees, how about the Democrats running the committees? Mitch McConnell was saying, I'm not going to go for that deal unless you will include in the rules or somehow nail it down that you're not going to do away with the filibuster. Because once the filibuster is gone, Mitch McConnell loses all his power. That's so what I that's all that about. Argument. And so when, a- when Manchin and Cinema came out and said, we will not vote to end the filibuster, period, no way. And both of them said, nobody's going to convince me otherwise. When they came out and said that, that gave Mitch McConnell the space to say, OK, I'll go along with the deal and the Democrats can run the committees. Or at least right. that's so the, un- the, the kabuki I theater understand. that we all saw. And I understand that, Tom. I don't understand why, where the law is, aside from the filibuster, that Mitch McConnell doesn't, because he's not typically, technically in power anymore, why he doesn't have to give up the gavels to a majority Democratic Senate. Because it's in the, the Senate rules can say anything. The Senate rules could, if, you know, if you can get 51 senators to agree to it, the Senate rules could start out that, you know, everybody has to wear a clown nose at nine o'clock every morning. Literally, they make up their own rules. So the rules so Mitch far McConnell have been... McConnell could hold the gavels forever. Well, if 51 senators agree, yes. But because uh-huh. you've got the tie-breaking vote for the gavel, for the main gavel, for the main Senate, the tie-breaking vote is Kamala Harris. So there's 51 votes to 50 votes. That gave the gavel for the Senate to Chuck Schumer. But on the committees, the committees are all 50-50. So the Senate has to come up with rules to decide who runs the committees. And that's what what was in flux. And arguably, Cinema and Manchin gave Mitch McConnell some face-saving. But it's still a disaster. Marilyn, thank you for the call. I realize it sounds kind of wonky, but the bottom line is this is going to determine whether we can get long-term unemployment, climate change, I mean, just so much stuff, right? We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 